0: This is Democracy,
1: a podcast about the people of the United States,
2: a podcast about citizenship, about engaging with politics and the world around you, a podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues
0: and how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to talk about the extraordinary changes in the government of Germany which is the largest democracy in Europe, one of the largest and most influential democracies in the world. We're gonna talk about what the changes in German government mean for the future of democracy, our theme on this podcast, uh, around the world and in the United States in particular. Um, Americans have not been paying very much attention to these changes in Germany. We've had other things on our minds. But it might turn out that when uh, historians write about this year, about the year 2021, that the change in government, the end of the 16-year chancellorship of Angela Merkel and the rise of a new government under Olaf Scholz, including three parties, the SPD, the Socialist Party, the Socialist Social Democratic Party, the Free Democratic Party, and the Green Party, that that coalition and the change in governance in Germany turns out to be one of the historical headlines uh, from this year. We're joined uh, by a friend and extraordinary scholar, uh, Garrett Martin, who is an expert on transatlantic relations and France, Germany, and European politics in general. Uh, Garrett, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Garrett is a senior professorial lecturer and the co-director of the Transatlantic Policy Center in the School of International Service at American University. He's written widely on transatlantic issues, on U.S. foreign policy, on French politics, on European politics, and he is frequently uh, on various uh, media commenting on these issues, including NPR, BBC, CNN, Voice of America. ABC News, Australia, and France 24. He he covers the gamut of countries uh, talking about these issues. Uh, And uh, most important for us today, Garrett has been writing uh, quite a bit about the changes in the German government, and so we'll be able to draw on his uh, immediate analysis of these issues. Before we turn to our discussion with Garrett, uh, we have our scene-setting poem, as always, from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Not Just Us not just us. All right, let's 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 hear it.
1: I would like to turn on the television one of these days and see a bank teller has given a homeless man a hug in a supermarket, that instead of a blank stare, the man in the fancy car handed him his coat. I know what will be said. We have all forgotten what it means to be together, to wash our hands and take a seat at a shared table. We have all forgotten what it means to hold another person in a handshake, in their hoping, hating, heartache. We have all forgotten how sweet it would feel, her victory over a plague, maybe her new beginning in a parliament hall. Not just us. But sometimes it feels like a uniquely American problem, that maybe other people don't wake up each morning wondering how they can be great, or great again. But sometimes it feels like our own special pathology, our interminable period piece satire of an empire, that we see ourselves through the bars of our own cage and think we are looking at the world in a zoo. I, for one, think it's a shame because I know, I have in fact seen it on the six o'clock news, that somewhere on the other side, one of those people staring at us and expecting an apology holds something of an understanding of all this a precious sort of secret resting in the palm of their hands.
0: I love all the imagery in that poem, Zachary. The zoo and the evening news. Uh, What is your poem about? Uh, My poem is really about the ways in which the past
1: two years have really brought out the insecurities of our societies globally uh, but also the ways in which societies like Germany have been able to react to those changes largely in a positive constructive manner and and maybe our, our society in the
0: United States hasn't managed to do the same interesting that maybe we could learn from other societies um, Garrett that seems like the great place to uh, shift over to you Um First of all, just explain for us what this new German government looks like. It's different from what we're accustomed to seeing with a government dominated by the Christian Democrats and Angela Merkel.
2: Well, first of all, let me uh, commend Zach on the poem. And I think the theme of, of, of memory uh, is always particularly appropriate when we're talking about Germany. Uh, I think we struggle to remember a Germany before Angela Merkel because she's been such a towering figure in German politics, chancellor for 16 years, and remarkably decided to step down of her own accord. If she had run for a fifth term, I think there's a strong likelihood that she would have won. So I think that's something I think quite remarkable when we're thinking about the degree to which this election marked a a change. Uh, The the other element I think to, to keep in mind is that the election that brought this new coalition was was quite a tightly fought election. I mean, the SPD, the Social Democrats, narrowly won a plurality of votes, but it wasn't necessarily a ringing mandate or endorsement either. Uh, so it was quite close in terms of, of the results. The other element I think which is important when we're thinking about this election, uh, we you know, we talk about change with Merkel being no longer in the scene. But keep in mind that although we now have a chancellor and Olaf Scholz from the SPD, the SPD was in government for 12 of those 16 years. So that's also one of the remarkable elements of German politics, <laughs> the degree to which uh, there is deep consensus between the mainstream parties and that coalitions are really deeply inbred in the DNA of German politics. So I think that's one element to keep in mind when we think maybe about the future and about the elements of continuity and change and what we can expect from this new government. Uh, so the SPD has been a part. I mean, Olaf Scholz h- himself was Minister of Finance uh, in the last four years of the Merkel government. So I think that's the element there that that's, that's, that's important. Uh, the, the other, I think, issue that's interesting about this new government is that, yes, coalition politics, coalition governments are entirely normal in German politics, but it's quite unusual to have three parties. Right. Most of German politics have been sort of coalitions of two parties. That are probably more ideologically compatible this coalition it's the first time that we have this constellation of the democrats free democrats uh the spd and the greens so there's a lot of questions about how is that sort of mixture how is that going to work and they're quite different in some respects so that's going to be i think one of the interesting stories to follow up uh, in the next few months and next few years are they able to reconcile those differences, because they have a very ambitious mandate.
0: Right. And I think it's it's worth spending a little time on this, Garrett. They actually have an agreement, right, a written agreement. I think it's 166 pages, if I'm not mistaken, between the three parties, correct?
2: Absolutely. That is also a tradition of, uh, of German coalitions, that they have these very extensive, detailed coalition agreements. They're not legally binding, but I think they still are important in signaling what's the coalition wants to try and achieve.
0: And, and what do you take away from what's in that document this time?
2: There's a couple of important things. I think it's quite an ambitious uh, coalition agreement, both domestically and I would say also in, in the international stage. On the domestic stage, I think it's particularly ambitious insofar as improving infrastructure and digitization for Germany. I think that's particularly important. Uh, very ambitious climate goals trying to essentially phase out of coal power by 2030, having 80% of all renewable energy be provided by, um, uh, of all energy, sorry, be provided by renewable energy by the end of this decade, that's incredibly ambitious. Uh, there's some other elements that are also quite progressive, extending the right of vote to 16-year-olds, uh, legalizing cannabis. So these are quite progressive, uh, bold uh, and agenda domestically. On the foreign policy and on the international stage, I think there's very much a focus on a more values-driven foreign policy, uh, of moving away from what was derided as the mercantilism of Merkel. And so at least rhetorically, at least in that front, that am- would be quite an ambitious change from what we've seen in the past 16 years.
1: And this document, right, also lays out uh, who will be who will be filling the uh, positions in government, like foreign minister. Um, talk to us a little bit about who's going to be in government now.
2: Right. In in any coalition, there's some jockeying and sort of division of you know sharing of the spoils. So, and that's I think also particularly important if when we're thinking about that question of how that coalition is going to blend, because Olaf Scholz, obviously, since the SPD was the largest party. Has the Chancellor and a couple of other important positions. Uh, the Greens have the Minister of the Economy as well as the Foreign Minister in Annalena Bauerbach, who is also a co-leader of the Greens, a younger, she's only you know, 40 years old, uh, has been particularly vocal in taking a more hawkish line towards Russia and China in particular. And then Krista Lidner, who's a leader of the Free Democrats, has the important finance ministry. So That, I think, is normal in a coalition agreement, but I think it also showcases what could be some of the difficulties. Uh, The Free Democrats are, let's say, more fiscally prudent, whereas the SPD and the Greens certainly believe that there is need for greater investment to relax some of the, the stringent debt rules that you have in Germany in order to be able to finance these important domestic changes I referred to earlier.
1: But this is also, yes, a historically diverse uh, group of leaders that uh, Germany will have in the next few years in terms of gender, race, uh, place of birth, yes?
2: Yes, it's certainly um, more diverse than, than some of the previous governments, for sure. Uh, I think that's that's particularly important.
0: So, so, what changes do you think from the uh, coalition agreement and from the makeup of the personnel? What changes do you think are going to be most, uh, most rapid and most significant in the next year from this government?
2: I, I certainly think where you, you will see the biggest change on the foreign policy stage, maybe to start there, is in terms of the rhetoric and the, the commitment to human rights and the commitment to values. Uh, especially when it comes to, as I mentioned, dealing with Russia and China. Uh, I think that's for a variety of reasons. One is because I think you have in the in the foreign ministry um, the Greens who maybe have been the most vocal about the need for change, but also because I think the ground has changed. I also think because the international system has changed significantly, uh, public opinion I think is taking a more and more pessimistic line towards China, as is to a certain degree German businesses. So I think for that reason, I think it will be easier to see a clearer change from the Merkel approach, which was essentially an idea of change through trade, uh, very much in line with the long legacy of German foreign policy going back to the Cold War, that you had to continue talking to adversaries, that it was important to have to be a bridge. Uh, We saw that during the period of the Cold War, and Merkel's approach was very much in line with that. I don't see such appetite or necessarily such uh, commitment to optimism about the possibility of change through trade uh, in this new coalition. Uh, it's you know fascinating that if you use the example of China, uh, the coalition of agreement of 2013 spoke of China being a very important strategic partner of Germany. And even four years ago, the language was still optimistic. This latest iteration of the coalition agreement Uh, speaks very openly and clearly about some of the human rights violations that China commits in Xinjiang or elsewhere. It speaks very clearly about the importance of preserving and abetting Taiwan. Uh, And so I think that really is, is significant because the coalition has put itself on record as valuing these issues. So I think that's where I would anticipate major change. And and what about for the European
0: Union and Germany's neighbors? Do you see this as a as a positive step forward for the European Union, or do you see more trouble ahead?
2: That's a good question. I, I do think you know Olaf Schultz is is quite in line of the mainstream of, of German politicians when it comes to emphasizing the importance of the European pillar. And, and, and viewing German foreign policy as realising itself within that, that European anchor. So that I don't see anything significantly different. Where I think there's going to be a couple of important dossiers or a couple of very important topics where we will see the degree of continuity or change vis-à-vis Merkel. One, and which really I think speaks to the themes of, of the podcast, is on issues of rule of law and democratic backsliding in Europe itself. Um, Poland and Hungary have long been on the radar as being the most the worst offenders. And I think it was fair to say that at times Merkel was maybe uh, too lenient towards the Orbans and you know of this world. And so that's where I think that the big litmus test is gonna be whether this new German coalition government is going to support taking more punitive measures towards backsliding in Europe. In particular, one important example is the degree to which they might support withholding EU funds to states that run afoul uh, when it comes to the rule of law. So I think that's going to be an area where uh, that's going to be a, a significant test. And where, and if Germany puts its weight behind this, that could be, I think, an important game changer. What about Ukraine. I mean, that's the crisis of the day
0: now, right? Uh, will this government take a tougher stand on uh,
2: Russian aggression in Ukraine? It depends what you mean by, by tougher stand, Jeremy. I mean, you know, keep in mind Merkel took a leading role after 2014 so far as as implementing major sanctions against Russia. So if we're talking about a tougher stand in that, uh, perspective in that framework, I think you can certainly imagine that to be the case, and I know that um, you know the Biden administration certainly coordinated uh, with their Western counterparts that they would be willing to take that step. Anything that it would be a more significant military uh, action to bolster Ukraine, uh, sending more weapons, uh, any measures of that kind, I'm more skeptical that we're going to see a major difference because that's still very difficult for Germany. Uh, to take those steps It's still very difficult for Germany to view itself in a sort of um, to taking these, you know, harder, power sort of measures.
1: And speaking of cooperation with the Biden administration, how do you think the new German government uh, will will change uh, German-American relations and European-American relations?
2: Well, you know, German governments have have generally always been profoundly transatlanticist. I think that's very much enshrined in the DNA of German foreign policy after 1945. So in that context, I very much assume that we will see a, a, a German government committed to working with the Biden administration, also believing and relieved that the Biden administration is more committed to defending and bolstering multilateralism. I think you know whether the German coalition government and Merkel... We're also delighted to see uh, the Biden administration rejoin WHO, uh, rejoin WTO, and so forth. So I think in that sense, yes, I expect that they will be very committed to improving relations and to working with the Biden administration. The challenge, I think, is the degree to which, and this is true for Germany as it is, I think, for other major European powers, is a degree to which they can sort of trust that American politics are not going to be significantly volatile as they have been in the last few years. That's the big question, is can they trust that any engagement, any promises, any agreements that they make with the Biden administration will not be completely undone by the stroke of a pen, whether three or seven years from now? I think that's still a concern. Uh, It's a concern that's also very much shared within the German public and European publics about the reliability of the United States as an ally. Uh, that's you know the events of the last four years on top of the events of january 6 i think have left deep scars amongst european leaders and the european public that will not heal that easily so i think that's that, that's one challenge it,
0: it's such an important point. I mean, we, we, we don't think about the international implications of these, these events. What does, uh, and this just builds on your, your comments, uh, Garrett, what does uh, the German, the change in German government, what, what, what does it do as a mirror holding it up to the U.S. Uh, government? What do you see that we learn in the United States about ourselves and about the state of democracy at home and abroad from the changes in Germany?
2: For me, I you know there are obviously significant differences, but I, I am also you know, struck by the similarity of the of the challenges. Though there is significant fragmentation in German politics, as there are in many other parts of of, of Europe, and as there are to a degree in the United States. Yes, we have the big the two big parties, but within the two parties, they're quite significantly fragmented as well. I think we're seeing that in, in, in German politics as we are seeing in other parts of the continent where the traditional mainstream parties of government, the Christian Democrats or the SPD, are now really, you know, quali- they're only really holding the loyalty of a small and smaller share of the German electorate. Okay, And so these bigger coalitions that we're seeing now are probably going to become far more the norm for German politics. Okay, And I think that's both... I think that's both a blessing in terms of bringing new faces and new people to government, but it does create challenges of governance because you're going to have to find ways to reconcile very differing viewpoints. You're going to have to find ways to uh, be able to have a harmonious approach to very major challenges. Uh, Just to give you an example of, of climate change, I think all the three parties in Germany care deeply about combating climate change. The problem is how you, how to do so. Right. The uh, you know the free democrats will probably have much more of a market approach where they want to try to use tax incentives, whereas for the Greens they believe that government has to lead the way by providing spending to encourage um, you know major changes. Uh, I would also suggest. I'm sorry if I'm rambling a bit here. No, but, no, please. You know, the similarity too is is the extent to which. We talk a lot about the left behinds, whether in Europe or the United States, the extent to which certain groups, certain segments of the population have struggled greatly by the significant economic dislocation and economic changes of the last few decades. The the Greens and the the Free Democrats represent these more well-to-do educated voters in Germany. And so their more radical sort of uh, hopes for change in Germany will have to be balanced by the consideration that you still have a big divide between the eastern and the western parts in Germany. Even thir- you know, 32 years removed from the joyous spectacle of the war falling, there is still a significant gap between the five states, the five landers in East Germany, and the other states in terms of prosperity, employment, and so forth. It's it's such a good point, and, and we
0: are seeing political fragmentation clearly in in multiple democracies, and, and also uh, disillusionment with traditional parties and traditional institutions. It does appear to me, though, Garrett, that one of the interesting things about this recent German election and the new government is that the far right has been excluded, that the AfD, the uh, uh, far right party... Um, did not do very well. I think they 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 still scored about nine percent, if I'm not mistaken. But they didn't rise as some had feared they would. Uh, is that a good sign for us?
2: I think it, it, it's a good sign insofar as the, the the story or the narrative of populism being constantly on the rise and this uh, you know, unassailable, very you know, large threat to uh, politics in Europe and elsewhere, I think is maybe a little bit overblown. I think that's one element. I think it also speaks to the fact that the, the weakening of support for the mainstream parties has not just been captured by populist parties on the right. I think the Greens and the rise of the Greens are a sign that you have other insurgent parties that are not necessarily anti-democratic or autocratic or or have authoritarian tendencies. I think we lose that sometimes. I mean, you know, where I grew up in France, uh, Macron and and, and La République En Marche is an example of a party that has emerged from the weakening of these uh, traditional mainstream parties of government. So I think that's that's one element here. I, I think that the strength and the weakness of the German example, though, is that you have such a tradition of the mainstream parties being in coalition to the, together, and I think that's a, a very good example, it's a very good model, I think, for other parts of the world. The other risk though is that those two parts those mainstream parties become or viewed as interchangeable. That uh, you don't have necessarily a clear sense of an alternative or a clear sense of a choice when it comes to voting. If all the parties are essentially Always in government, always working together, and their policies don't change drastically. That can breed cynicism. Uh, I think that's, you know, the, the IFD may have weakened this time, but four years from now, if the German voters believe that, okay, they had Merkel for 16 years and now they have Olaf Scholz and it's pretty much the same, you could easily see disaffected voters once again move towards the IFD. And then we're back to sort of the situation we had a, a few years ago.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So, so Garrett, we always like to close our podcast with a, a, a discussion, a short discussion of how this uh, background knowledge that you bring and expertise that you and all of our guests bring, how that historical and political perspective can inform current decisions. Uh, our hypothesis, of course, is that it can. <laughs> so how do you, as an expert on these issues, how do you think about uh, democratic decision making going forward? What have you learned from the German case, the German recent German election, and the formation of this new government that can be useful for democracy activists in the U.S.? What can they take from
2: this? It's a, it's a very it's a very broad question. It's a very important question. Uh, I think one element, and this is something that I just a student of mine wrote a paper about, and I thought that was very interesting, is the extent to which. In, in Germany, you still have a fairly high audience for public broadcasting services. Okay, you have a couple of key public broadcasting services that I, I think have helped create at least a sense that there are certain facts that are listened, heard, and shared across the German population. You know, of course, with the rise of cable and other sort of news sources. Uh, those public broadcasting services don't command the same kind of audience that they did 20, 30 years ago, but I think that that has played a role in in limiting the degree of debilitating polarization that we've seen here in the U.S., but also in other parts of the world. So I think there's something to be said about having trusted, a shared sources of information um, across democratic societies because it allows us at least to start our debates along a certain shared foundation. And I think Germany, there's something to be learned about that model. I don't think it can be as easily replicated. I don't think it can be as easily emulated, but I think it's an important sort of lesson that we we should try to draw.
0: It's a great uh, example. And and as I understand it, Deutsche Welle, which is the the main German public uh, news broadcasting service, is very well-funded um, and, and, and there's a tradition of being supported by, by all parties in Germany. And so that might be a model for us to
2: think about. Yes. Absolutely. And, you know, one I think one of the historical ironies is if I, I need to double check this, take this with a pinch of salt, but I think some of these models of public broadcasting, uh, were also set up by sort of, you know, the American occupation. I so believe so. Of, yeah. So it's one of the ironies that essentially the Germans, Learned from the United States in the post-war, perfected it to a degree, and maybe they could teach us some lessons again. I think that would be a that would be a nice historical sort of irony, if I may. We we like historical cycles, don't we? Uh, and <laughs> Absolutely. and it's
0: true. I think I think one of the concerns after World War II that American occupation forces and French and British occupation forces has had was to make sure there was a standard, respected, factual news source. To limit uh, fascist rumors and things, and communist rumors and things of that sort. So I, I, I think it's it's interesting how we've come full circle to those issues. Zachary, does does this discussion, as particularly the emphasis upon factual news sources, does it resonate with you? Is that something that young democracy activists like yourself can get behind? Can we do more of that work in the U.S.?
1: I think we certainly can, but I also think what the German system teaches us is that. We 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 do need to seriously not just think about how we can improve our political discourse, but we do actually need to think about reforming the engines of government and how do we elect governments, how do we choose governments? Because I think what the recent German elections show us is that there really is an alternative. Maybe it's not a better alternative, maybe it doesn't work in our society, but I think we have to be willing to to to, to experiment with with our political systems and not not simply embrace what we've always done every time.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Garrett, that's the the last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, You are an expert on uh, at least three major democratic systems, right? Germany, France, which as you referred to before is your original home and your first book is on France, and of course the United States. Uh, And there are three very different systems. Um, Which which one works best or what would you say about (laughs) comparing the three of them?
2: (laughs) God, it's like picking, you know, your favorite child. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that that's a hard question. That's a hard question. I, I think the, and you know, to be fair, I, I think they've they've all shown, you know, I think the pandemic has been the great equalizer in in showing some of the limitations and some of the challenges that all of our these countries have faced. Okay, I think that for me has been particularly striking. I remember Germany being really lauded. Uh, as a major model in the early phase of the pandemic, in terms of not having the same sort of caseload per capita as the United States or France. Uh, But that narrative now has changed to a degree because I think Germany is suffering from some of the effects of having an overly federalized system when it comes to healthcare. Uh, So some of the strengths that it had early on are also proving some of its limitations. Uh, I think, you know, in the French case just to use the pandemic as sort of the event that is all domineering for all of us. Uh, you know, France started slowly as well in, in some of the way it, it managed the pandemic, but some of its overly centralized system was particularly effective in creating, uh, you know, mandates in, infect- in implementing a sort of sanitary pass, which is essentially that you've got to show proof of vaccination to access most buildings, museums, uh, all indoor activities, I think that has really been beneficial. That has really, I think, been a major factor in elevating the rates of vaccination over the summertime. So, uh, um, it, it it's 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 hard i i think it's really hard to find um, a clear answer to that question when comparing those those different models yeah I, I think the important point and you've
0: displayed it uh in in your recent discussion about the different approaches to the to the pandemic i i think um what's so important is to recognize that each system can learn from the other that there's there, there really isn't a perfect system and democracy is a continual work in progress that's the core theme of our podcast of course but as a work in progress it's constantly different democratic systems are constantly learning from one another
2: and it's you know and also very much uh, you know when we're talking about the the nefarious aspect you know of course we want democracies to learn from each other i think we want to know that we're able to draw lessons from other examples but we have to because also the degree to which this disinformation and some of the nefarious sides they're clearly copycat effects of some of the, the you know some of the narratives over the risks posed by the, the vaccines are essentially echoed translated and then applied to different local contexts so i think for that reason we really have a burden on, on all of our democratic societies to learn how to counter those those dangerous uh sort of
0: narratives Absolutely. And I think your insights today have really given us a comparative framework for thinking about precisely that. How can we make our democracies in the United States and elsewhere stronger by examining and learning from others, uh, just as they're examining and learning from us and the bad guys are already learning from one another. It's important that those defending democracy are learning from one another. Uh, Isolation and head in the sand approaches uh, can only be a route to stagnation, not to, not to positive change. Um, Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your your insights on these, these very complex issues. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jeremy, and thank you, Zach, for hosting me. And Zachary, thank you for your uh, thoughtful poem and wonderful questions, as always. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode and this week of This Is Democracy.